Chapter Three, Part Two of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Occasionally, the people outside in the town and park also were allowed to see that Mamma loved us. For a while, Albrecht drove or rode, bad rider though he was, with the Grand Duke early in the morning. Klaus Heinrich and Ditlinde had from time to time to take turns at accompanying Mamma on her drives, which took place in the spring and autumn at the time of the afternoon promenade, with Baroness von Schulenburg-Tressen in attendance. Klaus Heinrich was a little excited and feverish before these drives, to which, unfortunately, no enjoyment, but on the contrary a great deal of trouble and effort attached, for directly the open carriage came out through the lion's gate on to the Albrechtsplatz, past the grenadiers at the present, there were a lot of people collected, waiting for it, men, women, and children, who shouted and stared full of curiosity, and that meant pulling oneself together, sitting up erect, smiling, hiding the left hand, and saluting in such a way as to make the people happy. And so it went on right through the city and fields. Other vehicles were obliged to keep away from ours. The police looked to that, but the foot-passengers stood on the curb, the women curtsied, the men took off their hats and looked with eyes full of devotion and importunate curiosity, and this was the impression Klaus Heinrich got, that they all were there just to be there and to stare, while he was there to show himself and to be stared at, and his was far the harder part. He kept his left hand in his coat pocket and smiled as Mamma wished him to, while he felt that his cheeks were aglow. But the courier reported that the rosy redness of our little duke's cheeks showed what a healthy boy he was. Klaus Heinrich was thirteen years old when he stood at the solitary mother-of-pearl table in the middle of the cold silver hall and tried to probe the reality of things around him. And as he scrutinized the various phenomena the empty, torn pride of the room, aimless and uncomfortable, the symmetry of the white candles, which seemed to express awe and tension, and discreet self-obliteration, the passing shadow on his father's face when anybody addressed him unasked, the cool and calculated beauty of his mother, whose one object was admiration, the devoted and importunately curious gaze of the people outside, then a suspicion seized him, a vague and approximate conception of his situation. But simultaneously horror seized him, terror at such a destiny, a dread of his exalted calling, so strong that he turned round and covered his eyes with both his hands, both the little wrinkled left one, too, and sank down at the lonely table and cried, cried from sympathy with himself and his heart, till they came, and wrung their hands, and turned their eyes up to heaven, and questioned him, and led him away. He gave out that he had been frightened, and that was quite true. He had known nothing, understood nothing, suspected nothing of the difficulty and sternness of the life prescribed for him. He had been merry and careless, and had given his guardians many a scare. But there was no resisting the impressions which soon came thronging upon him, and forcing him to open his eyes to the real state of things. In the northern suburbs, not far from the spa gardens, a new road had been opened. 
people told him that the city council had decided to call it Klaus Heinrichstrasse. Once, when driving out with his mother, and he called at a picture dealer's, they wanted to buy something. The footman waited at the carriage door, the public gathered round, the picture dealer bustled about, there was nothing new in all that. But Klaus Heinrich, for the first time, noticed his photograph in the shop window. It was hanging next those of artists and great men, men with lofty brows, with a look of the loneliness of fame in their eyes. People were satisfied with him on the whole. He gained dignity with years, and self-possession under the pressure of his exalted calling. But the strange thing was that his longing increased at the same time, that roving inquisitiveness which Schulrat Tröger was not the man to satisfy, and which had impelled him to chat with the lackeys. He had given up doing that. It did not lead to anything. They smiled at him, confirming him by that very laugh in the suspicion that his world of the symmetrically marshaled candles presented an unconscious antithesis to the world outside. But they were no manner of help to him. He looked round about him on the expeditions, in the walks he took through the town gardens with Ditlinde and the Swiss governess, followed by a lackey. He felt that if they were all of one mind to stare at him, while he was all alone and made conspicuous just to be stared at, he also had no share in their being and doing. He realized that they presumably were not always as he saw them, when they stood and greeted him with deferential looks, that it must be his birth and upbringing which made their looks deferential, and that it was with them as with the children when they heard about fairy princes, and were thereby refined and elevated above their workaday selves. But he did not know what they looked like and were when they were not refined and elevated above their workaday selves. His exalted calling concealed this from him, and it was a dangerous and improper wish to allow his heart to be moved by things which his exaltedness concealed from him. And yet he wished it. He wished it from a jealousy and that roving inquisitiveness which sometimes drove him to undertake voyages of exploration into unknown regions of the old Schloss with Ditlinde, his sister, when the opportunity offered. They called it rummaging, and great was the charm of rummaging, for it was difficult to acquire familiarity with the ground plan and structure of the old Schloss, and every time they penetrated far enough into the remoter parts they found rooms, closets, and empty halls which they had not yet trodden, or strange roundabout ways to already known rooms. But once, when thus wandering about, they had a rencontre, an adventure befell them, which made a great impression on Klaus Heinrich, though he did not show it, and opened his eyes. The opportunity came, while the Swiss governess was absent on leave to attend the evening service. They had drunk their milk from teacups with the Grand Duchess, accompanied by the two ladies-in-waiting, and had been dismissed and directed to go back hand-in-hand hand to their ordinary occupations in the nursery, which lay not far off. It was thought that they needed nobody to go with them. Klaus Heinrich was old enough to take care of Ditlinde, of course. He was, and in the corridor he said, "'Yes, Ditlinde, we will certainly go back to the nursery, but we need not go, you know, the shortest, dullest way.' We'll rummage a bit first. If you go up one step and follow the corridor as far as where the arches begin, 
you'll find a hall with pillars behind them. And if you go out of one of the doors of the hall with pillars, clamber up the corkscrew staircase, you come to a room with a wooden roof, and there are lots of funny things lying about there. But I don't know what comes after the room, and that's what we've got to find out. So let's go. Yes, let's, said Ditlinde, but not too far, Klaus Heinrich, and not where it's too dusty, for this dress shows everything. She was wearing a dress of dark red velvet, trimmed with satin of the same color. She had at that time dimples in her elbows and light golden hair that curled round her ears like ram's horns. In after years she was pale and thin. She, too, had the broad, rather over-prominent cheekbones of her father and nation, but they were not accentuated, so that they did not spoil the lines of her face. But with Klaus Heinrich they were strong and emphatic, so that they seemed somewhat to encroach upon, to narrow and to lengthen his steel-colored eyes. His dark hair was smoothly parted, cut in a careful rectangle on the temples, and brushed straight back from the forehead. He wore an open jacket with a waistcoat buttoning at the throat and a white turned-down collar. In his right hand he held Ditlinda's little hand, but his left arm hung down, with its brown, wrinkled, and undeveloped hand, thin and short from the shoulder. He was glad that he could let it hang without bothering to conceal it, for there was nobody there to stare and to require it to be elevated and inspired, and he himself might stare and examine to his heart's content. So they went and rummaged as they liked. Quiet reigned in the corridors, and they saw hardly a lackey in the distance. They climbed up a staircase and followed the passage till they came to the arches, showing that they were in a part of the Schloss which dated from the time of John the Headstrong and Heinrich the Confessor, as Klaus Heinrich knew and explained. They came to the Hall of the Pillars, and Klaus Heinrich there whistled several notes close after each other, for the first were still sounding when the last came, and so a clear chord rang under the vaulted ceiling. They scrambled, groping, and often on hands and knees, up the stone, winding staircase which opened behind one of the heavy doors, and reached the room with the wooden ceiling, in which there were several strange objects. There were some broken muskets of clumsy size, with thickly rusted locks, which had been too bad for the museum, and a discarded throne with torn red velvet cushions, short, wide-splayed lion legs, and cupids hovering over the chair back, bearing a crown. Then there was a wicked-looking, dusty, cage-like, and horribly interesting thing which intrigued them much and long. If they were not quite mistaken, it was a rat-trap, for they could see the iron spike to put the bacon on, and it was dreadful to think of how the trap-door must fall down behind the great beast. Yes, this took time, and when they stood up after examining the rat-trap, their faces were hot, and their clothes stiff with rust and dust. Klaus Heinrich brushed them both down, but that did not do much good, for his hands were as filthy as his clothes. And suddenly they saw that dusk had begun to fall. They must return quickly. Ditlinde insisted anxiously on that. It was too late to go any farther. "'That's an awful pity,' said Klaus Heinrich. "'Who knows what else we mightn't have found? And when shall we get another chance of rummaging, Ditlinde?' But he followed his sister, and they hurried back down the turret stairs, crossed the Hall of the Pillars, 
and came out into the arcade, intending to hurry home hand in hand. Thus they wandered on for a time, but Klaus Heinrich shook his head, for it seemed to him that this was not the way he had come. They went still farther, but several signs told them that they had mistaken their direction. This stone seat with the griffin heads was not standing here before. That pointed window looked to the west over the low-lying quarter of the town, and not over the inner courtyard with the rose-bush. They were going wrong. It was no use denying it. Perhaps they had left the hall of the pillars by a wrong exit. Anyhow, they had absolutely lost their way. They went back a little, but their disquietude would not allow them to go very far back, so they turned right about again, and decided to push on the way they had already come, and to trust to luck. Their way lay through a damp, stuffy atmosphere, and great undisturbed cobwebs stretched across the corners. They went on with heavy hearts, and Ditlinde especially was full of repentance and on the brink of tears. People would notice her absence, would look sadly at her, perhaps even tell the Grand Duke. They would never find the way, would be forgotten, and die of hunger. And where there was a rat-trap, Klaus Heinrich, there were also rats. Klaus Heinrich comforted her. They only had to find the place where the armor and crossed standards hung. From that point he was quite sure of the direction. And suddenly, they had just passed a bend in the winding passage, suddenly something happened. It startled them dreadfully. What they had heard was more than the echo of their own steps. They were other, strange steps, heavier than theirs. They came towards them now quickly, now hesitatingly, and were accompanied by a snorting and grumbling which made their blood run cold. Ditlinde made as if to run away from fright, but Klaus Heinrich would not let go her hand, and they stood with starting eyes waiting for what was coming. It was a man who was just visible in the half-darkness, and, calmly considered, his appearance was not horrifying. He was squat in figure and dressed like a veteran soldier. He wore a frock-coat of old-fashioned cut, a woolen comforter around his neck, and a medal on his breast. He held in one hand a curly top-hat, and the other the bone-handle of his clumsily rolled-up umbrella, which he tapped on the flags in time with his steps. His thin gray hair was plastered up from one ear in wisps over his skull. He had bow-shaped black eyebrows, and a yellow-white beard which grew like the Grand Duke's, heavy upper lids, and watery blue eyes with pouches of withered skin under them. He had the usual high cheekbones, and the furrows of his sunburnt face were like crevasses. When he had come quite close, he seemed to recognize the children, for he placed himself against the outer wall of the passage, at once fronted round and began to make a number of bows, consisting of several short forward jerks of his whole body from the feet upwards, while he imparted a look of honesty to his mouth and held his top hat crowned downwards in front of him. Klaus Heinrich meant to pass him by with a nod, but was surprised into halting, for the veteran began to speak. "'I beg pardon,' he suddenly grunted, then went on in a more natural voice. "'I earnestly beg your young highness's pardon. But would your young highnesses take it amiss if I addressed to them the request that they would very kindly acquaint me with the nearest way to the nearest exit?' 
It need not actually be the Albrechtstor, not in the least necessary that it should be the Albrechtstor, but any exit from the Schloss, if I dare be so free as to address this inquiry to your young highnesses. Klaus Heinrich had laid his left hand on his hip, right behind, so that it lay almost in his back, and looked at the ground. The man had simply spoken to him, had engaged him directly and unavoidably in conversation. He thought of his father and knitted his brows. He pondered feverishly over the question how he ought to behave in this topsy-turvy and incorrect situation. Albrecht would have pursed up his mouth, sucked with his short, rounded underlip lightly against the upper, and passed on in silence. So much was certain. But what was the use of rummaging if at the first serious adventure one intended to pass on in dignity and dudgeon? And the man was honest and had nothing wicked about him. That Klaus Heinrich could see when he forced himself to raise his eyes. He simply said, "'You come with us. That's the best way. I will willingly show you where you must turn off to get to an exit.' And they went on. "'Thanks,' said the man. "'Ever so many thanks for your kindness. Heaven knows I should never have thought that I should live to walk about the old Schloss one day with your young highnesses. But there it is, and after all my annoyance—' for I have been annoyed, terribly annoyed, that's true and certain. After all my annoyance I have at any rate this honour and this satisfaction. Klaus Heinrich longed to ask what might have been the reason for so much annoyance, but the veteran went straight on, and tapped his umbrella in regular time on the flags as he went. And I recognised your young highnesses at once, although it is a bit dark here in the passage, for I have seen you many a time in the carriage and was always delighted, for I myself have just such a couple of brats at home. I mean to say, mine are brats, mine are, and the boy is called Klaus Heinrich, too. Just like me, said Klaus Heinrich, overjoyed. What luck! There's no luck about it, said the man, considering he was named expressly after you, for he is a couple of months younger than you, and there are lots of children in the town and country who are called that, and all of them after you. No, one can hardly call it luck. Klaus Heinrich concealed his hand and remained silent. Yes, I recognized you at once, said the man. And I thought, thank heaven, thought I, that's what I call fortune in misfortune. And they'll help you out of the trap into which you have stuck your nose, you old blockhead. And you've good reason to laugh, thought I, for there's many a one has trudged about here and been guyed by those popinjays and hasn't got out of it so well. Poppenjays, thought Klaus Heinrich, and guide. He looked straight in front of him. He did not dare to ask. A fear, a hope struck him. He said, quite simply, They, they guide you? Not half, said the man. I should think they did, the ogres, and no mistake. But I don't mind telling your young highnesses, young though you are, but it'll do you good to hear it, that these people here are a set of wasters. A man comes and delivers his work as respectfully as possible. Yes, bless my soul, he cried suddenly, and tapped his forehead with his hat. I haven't yet introduced myself to your young highnesses, and told you who I am, have I? Hinerka, he said. Master Cobbler Hinerka, royal warrant-holder, pensioner, and medalist. 
and he pointed with the index finger of his great, rough, yellow-spotted hand to the medal on his breast. "'The fact is that His Royal Highness, your father, has been graciously pleased to order a pair of boots from me, top boots, riding boots, with spurs, and made of the best quality patent leather. They're my specialty, and I made them myself and took a lot of trouble about them, and they were ready to-day and ever so smart.' "'You must go yourself,' says I to myself. "'I have a boy who delivers, but I says to myself, "'You must go yourself. They are for the Grand Duke.' "'So I rig myself out and take my boots and go to the Schloss. "'All right,' say the lackeys down below, "'and want to take them from me. "'No,' say I, for I don't trust them. "'It's my reputation gets me my orders and my warrant. "'Let me tell your highnesses, not because I tip the lackeys.' but the fellows are spoiled by tips from the warrant-holders, and want to get something out of me for their trouble. No, say I, for I'm not a one for bribing and underhand dealings. I'll deliver them myself, and if I can't give them to the Grand Duke himself, I'll give them to the valet Prahl. They looked daggers, but they say, Then you must go up there, and I go up there. There are some more of them up there, and they say, all right, and want to take charge of the boots, but I ask for prawl and stick to it. They say, he's having his tea, but I'm determined and say, then I'll wait till he's finished. And just as I say it, who comes by in his buckled shoes but valet prawl? And he sees me, and I give him the boots with a few modest words, and he says, all right, and actually adds, they're fine, and nods and takes them off. Now I'm satisfied, for Prawl, he's safe, so off I go. Hi, cries somebody. Mr. Hanerka, you're going wrong. Damn, says I, and right about and go off in the other direction. But that was the stupidest thing I could do, for they had sent me to Jericho, and that's just where I don't want to go. I walk on a bit and meet another one and ask him the way to the Albrecht's store. But he spots at once what's up and says, Go up the stairs, and then keep to the left, and then down again, and you'll cut off a large corner. And I believe he means it kindly, and do what he says, and get more and more muddled, and altogether lose my bearings. Then I see it's not my fault, but the rogues, and it strikes me that I have heard that they often play that trick on court tradesmen who don't tip them, and let them wander about till they sweat. And my fury makes me blind and stupid, and I get to places where there's not a living soul, and I don't know where I am, and get properly put about. And at last I meet your young highnesses. Yes, that's how it is with me in my boots, ended Shoemaker Hinerka, and wiped his forehead with the back of his hand. Klaus Heinrich squeezed Ditlinde's hand. His heart beat so loud that he absolutely forgot to hide his left hand. That was it. That was a touch of it, an outline. No doubt about it, that was the sort of thing this exalted calling shielded him from, the sort of thing people did when they were in the ordinary workaday frame of mind, the lackeys. He said nothing. Words failed him. "'I see that your young highnesses don't answer,' said the shoemaker, and his honest voice was filled with emotion. "'I oughtn't to have told you, because it isn't your business to get to know all the wickedness that goes on.' 
"'But yet I don't know,' he said, laid his head on one side and snapped his fingers, "'that it can do any harm, that it can do you any harm for the future and later on.' "'The lackeys,' said Klaus Heinrich, and took a plunge. "'Are they wicked?' I can quite well fancy. Wicked, said the cobbler. Good for nothings they are. That's the name for them. Do you know what they're good for? They keep the goods back when no tips forthcoming. Keep them back when the tradesman delivers them punctually at the time ordered, and only hand them over days late, so that the tradesman gets blamed, and is considered by the Grand Duke to have failed in his duty, and he loses his orders. That's what they do without scruple, and the whole town knows it. That's most annoying, said Klaus Heinrich. He listened, listened. He hardly realized how much shocked he was. Do they do anything else? he said. I'm quite sure they must do other things of the same kind. You bet, said the man, and laughed. No, they don't miss a chance. Let me tell your highnesses. They have all sorts of dodges. There's the door-opening joke, for instance. That's like this. Your father, our gracious Grand Duke, grants an audience to somebody. Let's suppose he's a new hand, and it's his first time at court. And he comes in a frock-coat, all sweat and shivers, for it is, of course, no trifle to stand before His Royal Highness for the first time. And the lackeys laugh at him, because they're quite at home here, and tow him into the ante-room and he doesn't know where he is, and absolutely forgets to tip the lackeys. But then comes his moment, and the adjutant says his name, and the lackeys throw open the double doors and let him into the room in which the Grand Duke is waiting. Then the new hand stands there and bows and says what he has to say, and the Grand Duke graciously gives him his hand, and so he is dismissed and walks backwards, and thinks the folding-doors are going to open behind him, as he has been definitely promised. But they don't open, I tell your highnesses, for the lackeys have got their knife into him, because they haven't been tipped, and don't stir a finger for him outside there. But he daren't turn round, absolutely daren't, because he daren't show the Grand Duke his back. That would be grossly bad manners and an insult to his highness. Then he feels behind him for the door-handle and can't find it, and gets the jumps, and scrabbles round on the door, and when at last by the mercy of Providence he finds the knob, it's an old-fashioned lock, and he doesn't understand it, and fiddles, and dislocates his arm, and tires himself out, and keeps bowing all the time in his agitation, until at last his highness graciously lets him out with his own hand. Yes, that's the door-opening joke, but that's nothing to what I'm going to tell your highness." They had been so deep in conversation that they had scarcely noticed where they were going, had gone down the stairs and reached the ground floor close to the Albrechtstor. Eiermann, one of the Grand Duchess's grooms of the chamber, came towards them. He wore a violet coat and side-whiskers. He had been sent out to look for their Grand Ducal Highnesses. He shook his head while still at a distance, in lively concern, and pursed his mouth up like a funnel but when he noticed shoemaker Hinerka walking with the children and tapping with his umbrella, all the muscles of his face relaxed and his jaw dropped. There was scarcely time for thanks and farewells. Ayaman was such in a hurry to part the children from the shoemaker, 
and with many a gloomy prophecy he led their grand ducal highnesses up to their room to the swiss governess eyes were turned to heaven hands were wrung about their absence and the state of their clothes the worst of all happened they were looked at sadly but klaus heinrich confined his contrition to the bare minimum he thought so the lackeys took money and let the tradesmen wander about in the corridors if they did not get any kept the goods back that the tradesmen might get blamed and did not open the folding doors so that the suitor had to scrabble that's what happened in the schloss and what must it be outside outside among the people who stared at him so respectfully and so strangely when he drove by with his hand to his hat but how had the man dared to tell it him not one single time had he called him grand ducal highness he had forced himself on him and offended his birth and upbringing and yet why was it so extraordinarily pleasant to hear all that about the lackeys why did his heart beat with such rapt pleasure when moved by some of the wild and bold things in which his highness bore no part end of section five